this is Kevin Dixon and a big welcome to a talk on the buyer side. I'm your host and I'm also the founder of Popstep, a sales platform that aligns the selling with the buying. We're a sales podcast with a difference because this is all about the buyers and in today's complex markets, it's their perspectives that really matter. We'll be having buyer side chats with decision makers and industry experts to understand more about buying challenges what salespeople do well, what they need to improve on, and how they can help in the buying process. Join us as we explore the concept of facilitation and collaboration with B2B buyers. David, a big welcome to Talk on the Buyer Side. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Great to be here. It's an absolute pleasure of mine. You and I have been connected for a couple of years now. I've got your blog, which I get regularly. Love it. I I get your videos, which once again, I I really like. And and I'm quite a fussy person because there is a lot of poor quality material out there. So I don't want to just consume rubbish, but I do value what you send out. Let's try and tell everyone a little bit about who you are and your background and what makes it relevant, because I do think it, it is relevant. And you've got a, a background that relates probably to a lot of the listeners. So tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the funny thing I say is that everyone tends to get into sales by accident. No one gets into sales on purpose. And so everyone has a story about how they got here. And I'm no different. I started my career as a research scientist over 20 years ago and ended up getting into sales at the turn of the dot-com boom. I joined a tech startup as a sales engineer and didn't even know sales was a thing like you could do for a living, but absolutely fell in love with it because of my research science background made me very curious. So I was always like very curious about, you know, when I said it like this, the customer got it. When I said it like that they kind of pissed them off so I I, I kind of brought this science-based curiosity to the world of selling Uh, and over the next 20 years spent my time across four amazing um, B2B tech startups Uh, three of them were acquired one which I helped start in 2008 was acquired by Salesforce where I came over with the ship and spent five awesome years kind of seeing how the sales machine was built operationally and culturally at scale and so uh, through all that time though as I fell in love with sales and and kind of started to pick it apart almost like a bit of an engineering problem I realized that this profession that I love so much is actually something that makes you the enemy in so, in so many people's minds. You tell them you're in sales. It does not make you popular. They think you're like, the, they think you're the enemy. So I realized people love to buy things, but they hate talking to salespeople. And I said, you know what? I need to make it the mission of the second half of my career to help change that by teaching people how to do it with science and empathy, do it the right way. Yeah, I've got to pick you up on that. You say people don't get into sales deliberately. Well, I did. I did. Now, when I did it, it was those medieval times, 1980s. And <laughs> let me tell you, I, I was, my first ever job was with Ericsson, you know, the big sort of global yeah. communications company, way before mobile phones. And in those days, I, I, I think I was like 19. And in those days, the average sales guy in the industry was 55. And it was incredibly formal. You know, their, their idea of relaxing would be to take their tie off and put a cravat on. <laughs> you know, it was, it was, but I was so pushy about getting into to become a sales guy because just the potential of, of what I thought it could do for me made me attracted to it, despite all the bad press that, that people get about sales. And I always talk to people about when I started selling, then people would say, oh, I hate cold calling this. When I cold called, it was cold called by knocking on someone's door in an office and saying, can I speak to the office manager or the managing director? So uh, maybe I'm one of the few people that, had that ambition to become a sales guy. 
The reason I invited you on is because of your book. This is a buyer-focused podcast, and your book, Sell the Way You Buy, triggered me off. Now, so the, before we get into it and some of the, the areas about it, because I did find it a really, really helpful book. But the first question I've got for you is why the bloody hell would you write a book? Everyone I've ever spoken to said it was the worst year of their life. <laughs> this was like, I, people keep saying to me, why don't you write a book? And I said, I'm not sure I've got enough to talk about or if I've got enough patience. Being bald already, I've got no hair to pull out. <laughs> so what, what triggered this off for you? Oh man. So it's a good question. You know, there, there are some tactical reasons for it. And then there's some existential reasons for it. The tactical reason for it is in my business, I'm just one, one, one guy. Right. And so in order to grow and scale, I can't do that if I don't have content that kind of, you know, gets the message out there for me. So the first step was the blog and then the YouTube channel and the book I just felt would help me get a little bit, get, get the message out there. Cause I'm, I'm a mission driven entrepreneur and I want to help people. And so the book was the best way to do that. But it was also, I don't know, you know, as a, as a guy who's done, I've done lots of weird stuff in my career. I mean, I've done four startups. I have a black belt in karate. I'm a certified meteorologist, uh, you know, and, and I've done all this stuff. And I'm like, you know what? I want to write a book. Like it was almost like a bucket list thing to be able to help people. But also because writing a book, to your point, is hard. And, you know, it took it was from the, and it was, it was actually, how do I say this? When I first started to think about writing the book, I said, well, I already have dozens of articles on my website. I'll just smush them all together and boom, book, right? Like the greatest hits. But it, it certainly was not like that because when you write a blog post, it has a beginning, middle and end and with a thousand words and you're done. And so you can't just take those snippets and stick it in a book because a book has to have like an arc and a whole narrative. So it was actually a lot harder than I thought, but I don't know. I love doing hard things. I love kind of the, the process of learning. Um, and for me, writing the book is kind of like, you know, redoing the plumbing in my kitchen or, you know, wiring up a light fixture. It's just, again, my engineering and curiosity based background just lent itself to that. So I, I wouldn't trade my experience writing the book for anything. You know, when I, when I first engaged my publisher and they said, if you start writing it now, it can be on shelves in a year and a half. I was like, oh my gosh, that's a long time. What, what, do you, what happens during that time? And the actual book writing part of it was actually not the, the biggest part almost, you know, getting the first draft out. But anyways, I love the, the process of writing a book. It was, um, you know, just kind of getting those thoughts there down on paper and, and just the prospect of, of knowing that hopefully people would read it and, and get value from it. And, and it's a little, little bit more of like an intimate experience than doing a video or an article. One of the reasons that I always think of myself as an old fashioned traditional sales guy is because I have a low boredom threshold, low interest level. So people used to say, what, you know, could you ever go to project management? No, that's my worst scenario. So you must be this sort of modern type person who's thinking about it because you know, I grew up in the art of selling and you refer to in your book and a lot of things you do about the science of selling. And don't get me wrong, I'm embracing it. I'm trying to get a blend. So if you have art or science or both, where, where's your view on this now? I actually have a, a, a narrative on this and, and, and I talk about it in the book and I, I say it's actually not about the art or the science. It's about a more important concept, which I refer to as the why, which is when you do something in sales and it has a certain outcome, you have to ask yourself, well, why did it have the outcome? Like what was the unique combination of art and science that led to that outcome? Because science will tell us that if we say these words in this order, it can have an impact. But then we also know from the art side that the tone that we use, which I would also argue is science because it's still kind of, you know, uh, social psychology and how it impacts people, um, has a huge impact on how that 
piece of content is received. So I actually, I do think it's, if, if I were to kind of answer your question, I do think it's a combination. I do think that the art is still science. Um, and, you know, you think about even, you know, theater art or visual art, there's still a combinations of things that psychologically become aesthetically pleasing to us, you know, based on science. But I think more importantly, one of the reasons why we've ended up where we've ended up in the world of modern selling, which is customers don't like talking to us, whether we ended up in the profession on purpose or not, is because we often don't think about the pathways and mechanisms that gave way to the outcome that we experience when we use a tactic. So that's why I think it's both art and science, mostly science, but, but more importantly than both, it's the why. Ask why. You just sort of said a couple of things that I thought were art, but now you've explained them. I go, yeah, I can see why they're science. So you know, don't get, I'm converting. You know, I'm, I'm not one of these. They say you can't teach an old dog through new tricks. Well, I'm an old dog and I'm constantly, I'm, every year I'm thinking, last year was last year. What do I need to do to get better? What do I need to do to differentiate, stay ahead of the competition? And I think that's held me in good stead. And, you know, I have a very successful sales career and sales leadership career. And it's because I was always thinking about you know, the change and everyone's changing. And I see a lot of the time now, Everyone's saying we need to get our sales teams to adhere more to a sales process. What's your view? Sales process or the agility to help buyers to buy? So when you say sales process, so are are you referring to, you know, first we do this and then we do that and we have a demo. The seller centric thing that someone internally is saying we've got to follow the sales process. And and actually, where's that getting you? Because we know the stats about how bad sales industries were. I I actually find now, I I actually say that helping is, is the new selling because the actions lead to the results and the actions are helping. The numbers take care of themselves. Yeah. Um, so when you're coaching sales teams, I'm assuming you, you don't, you're focused on the science of, of everything rather than you, you've come up with the David Prima sales methodology, sales process. That's right. Well, one of the big things that I'm a fan of, which when it comes to methodologies, and pro- there's lots of great stuff out there. There's lots of great content. And I've, I've, I've been trained by lots of great people and have hired trainers to train my sales teams over the years. And the, the thing that I talk about, which is actually the thing I talk about at the very end of my book, I, you know, I say it's chapter eight, but it's more like a few pages of afterward, which is don't fall in love. The big problem that exists in the world of modern selling, and this is actually something people have asked me before on shows, they say, David, if sales you know, people go out and they execute all these tactics that don't work or they're bad or customers hate, like why do they do them? Like, why do they do them? And this is, I actually address this at the very beginning of the book, which is just because that's the way they were taught. Like, that's it. There's no, they're not bad people that, you know, they, they just, this is the way they learned and that's the way they're doing it. And the problem is, and I kind of sum it up at the end is they've fallen in love, right? They've fallen in love with these tactics. They worked at some point, maybe they don't work as much anymore, but they were taught. They're very easy to follow. Step one, step two, step three. They're a little bit more rigid, but Hey, you know what? They fell, they've fallen in love. And, and my whole thing is you can't fall in love for, you know, for a couple of reasons. I mean, number one, because you'll just use these tactics too consistently and in the wrong ways. But also, and more importantly, it's because the world of buying has changed so much over the years that if you're still selling the way you were selling 10 years ago, you're just not going to be successful anymore. So, you know, I, I try to focus on classical tactics that are rooted in science and are rooted in just being a human being but don't fall in love with any one tactic or approach or methodology or process because it'll just lead you down the wrong path. I grew up in the era, I say I grew up in my, my early career, through quite a large chunk of it, is what I call the let me tell you about us era. 
And too many people are still cling on to it. They can't change. And I come across so many people that couldn't sell a black cat to a witch, but they're still in that sort of old sales process, banging the drum, all about us, something like that. Now, we're moving to world where suddenly huge amounts of data can be captured about what we're doing. And how do you think data is changing the way we sell? And is there too much of a swing towards data-driven selling? I don't think so. You know, I think there, there's data on two sides. There's data on the buying side and on the selling side. So on the buying side, we're learning about things like, you know, how much time customers are spending researching your product before they even engage with a salesperson, right? Are there, we're, we're finding out like how many times it actually takes before they pick up the phone now versus 10 years ago. So we're learning a great deal about buyer behaviors, which is great. But we're also learning a great deal about uh, seller behaviors and the behaviors that correlate with, with top performance. And just like, for example, a simple one. So I'll give you two simple examples. Number one, listening, right? Listening versus talking. Listening, and we were talking about this earlier, as salespeople and people who are enthusiastic about what we do, we just love to talk because we're, we, we we're enthusiastic. We love it. It's not from a, play, from a bad place. And it's infectious. Uh, it's infectious. Enthusiasm is infectious. Absolutely. It's the, it's the feeling. It's the conviction. You know, I often ask people, I say, can you tell I love what I do? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, how can you tell? I'm not searching for compliments, but I say, how can you tell? And he's like, well, you're really passionate and you know a lot about what you're talking about. I'm like, great. That stuff is transferable and, my, and it excites my customers. And at the end of the day, they're still buying feelings. But statistically speaking, the best salespeople are the ones that do a lot of listening. Because if we don't listen, then we're not going to learn anything about our customers. We're not going to engage them and, and, and make them feel that we care about them. So listening is one of those things that now has statistically been more proven um, to, to be one of those things that make us effective as sellers. Even things like, for example, when we get an objection from a customer and a customer says, oh, it's too expensive or it'll, it'll never work here, right? Or even objections that don't sound like objections, like uh, I need you to go through this RFP process kind of a thing. You know, the, the top sellers are the ones that don't just jump in and try to address the objection. They take a step back and they ask the customer questions about the objection, right? And statistically, customer, sellers who ask customers questions in response to an objection are, are typically the top performers. And so these are things you talk about data. We wouldn't have known these things, you know, 10 years ago, even five years ago, right? So this is informing kind of the new way of selling and, and, and helping us moderate our behaviors in, in new ways, both on the buying and selling side. Objections is a big section towards the sort of back end of your, your book. And every, it's almost like the mainstay of sales training. Everybody's got a theory about how you deal with objection. Thank you for sort of positioning someone. I'm not going to, if anyone wants to know more about it, we're not going to talk about it today. They need to, to, to buy the book because it does sort of give a different slant on it. And, and, and I found that really quite helpful. And going back to the sort of data, you talked about the buyer side. I, I focus a lot of my time on the buyer side because I think if I can walk a mile in their shoes and understand more about them, I'm better positioned to help them. And everyone talks about, you know, how much time they, they spend before they engage with salespeople, how many people are involved in the buying process, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the one stat, um, and we won't labor on this, but I always talk about it because it absolutely fascinates me. Every company is spending a lot of time getting insights and marketing collateral. And I think they say the average buyer team spends about 17% of the buying process meeting with vendors. They then spend 15% of the time deconflicting all of the information that the vendors have bombarded them with, creating analysis paralysis. So I'm always mindful of that, and people should be as well, about sending people the right insights, the right content at the right time, not just saying, here's a load of information, pick the golden nuggets out of that. But anyway, I don't want to labor on that. So I want to sort of continue on the, um, 
the area we're talking about. One of the things that we see a lot is that opportunities get created and, and it's supposed to be the responsibility of salespeople to do this. We all get training. We're all told we've got to create demand and very few people do it. In the past, the vast majority of opportunities were buyer-driven. I actually think now that given the crisis that's going on at the moment, I think there's going to be less opportunities driven for, for quite a period of time. So the onus is going to be on salespeople to create demand. And that's going to sort of push people to do things they haven't done before outside of the traditional way they've done things. If they want to survive and thrive and grow the business, be successful as salespeople, the cream will always rise to the top. How many more things can I get in that statement? What's the approach salespeople can take to start to create opportunity for themselves? Yeah, well, you know, I'm one of these people, I do believe that that buyers, I mean, there's so many different solutions that are on the market today in every category. That's actually one of the biggest ways that the sales and, and buying cha- game has changed so much is that you think you're this very unique snowflake of a solution, but you just sound the same to everyone else, to your customers. And so when you start talking, they tune out and it's a defense mechanism just because there's so many solutions out there. So, you know, one of the things that salespeople need to get really good at doing is kind of breaking through those defenses and showcasing to the customer that indeed they are unique by speaking the language of, of the pain and the problems. And, you know, the sales teams of the future, and this is not my uh, opinion, but there's a lot of great data on this. I cite this in my book, a, a really great study by Gartner, CEB, talks about how the sales teams of the future are the ones that are going to be more prescriptive. So even like, I'll give you a simple example now. If you wanted to go on vacation, I know we're, we're, you know, we're still talking in the middle of the pandemic. We would all love to go on vacation. But let's say you went on vacation. And so what do you do? You start looking on websites, right? Oh, I want to go to the Caribbean. And, and I find all of these resorts. And there's like a million resorts that come up when I search for vacation properties in the Caribbean. And so now I have all this information. I really don't know what to do with it. There's reviews and ratings, but I'm always wondering, are these people like me? Like what, I'm trying to make meaning of all this. And so I have this paralysis, exactly how you said. And so what's happening now is that instead of kind of sifting through all that, what do I do? I go to a travel agent and I just say like, make this easy for where should I go, right? And they tell me and they ask me some good questions and they lead me down the path and they don't present a thousand options. They say, here's like three places you could go to. And I pick one of those places and I feel good about what I've chosen, not because it was the best place I could have picked in the entire universe, but because I have confidence in the decision-making process in the way it was presented and I have trust in that individual. So I do believe, so the, the travel agents, if you're a recruiter or you're a bona fide salesperson in, in title, there's lots of things you can do to lead your customers to that decision. Because you know, keep in mind, the uh, solutions like yours, you sell that solution day in and day out to tons and tons of customers. And those customers don't buy that solution every day and they don't often talk to customers like them looking to buy it. So you're in this unique position oftentimes as sellers to know about the products or services that are in your industry, that are in your space, to make strong recommendations. And I'd say, especially now with everything going on in the world, helping uh, your customers be more agile in how they run their business by presenting them with different ways of thinking about things is your responsibility. Won't even, won't just make you successful, but it's your responsibility. So, you know, that's what salespeople of, of today and in the future need to do is be a little bit more prescriptive about the pains and challenges they can solve for their customers, speak those language of pains and, and help the customers buy in ways that they had never thought of before. I'm totally aligned with that. I think um, when we talked about Gartner and Gartner, one of the things they sort of said, uh, some research they did is that product differentiation is really difficult. You know, vendor A looks like vendor A. 
And you notice that wasn't a mistake. And funnily enough, when I talk to sales teams and sales leaders say, yeah, we have a real problem getting uh, product differentiation. Gardner said, well, you can actually differentiate on the buying experience. And more to your book, you sell the way you buy. Creating a better buying experience, helping them navigate their own complexity. It's definitely an area that any sales team should be looking at. So back to the book, your magical question. And this triggered some thoughts for me because I've actually got a house full of bad purchase decisions. Right. Probably, probably a garage full as well. The question was, when a customer evaluates a bunch of solutions and ends up purchasing one, how often do you think they buy the solution that is truly best for them? And I love that question. Tell, tell us a little bit more about why that came about. Yeah, well, this is actually, this is something a, a sales trainer, maybe you know, 15, 20 years ago, one of the first sales trainings I ever took, ask this question. And we always think that when a customer buys a solution, especially when it's ours, that of course, this, they made the best decision for them. But the reality is, is that we actually, when you think about it, we actually don't, and actually rarely make the best decisions for us. So the, the, one of the examples I give in the book is I say, if I asked you to write down everything that you ate for lunch in the last month, and then I said, I'm going to take that list, and I'm going to give it to your doctor. And I'm going to ask your doctor, did Kevin, did this person, eat the best thing for them for lunch, the best as defined as calorically, food groups, portion size, all that, you know, what percentage of the time? I'm not going to put you on the spot here, Kevin, but. I, I'm bad. I'm terrible. Most people, and some people are kind of very healthy, which is great, but most people would give like a very low answer. But, but if I were to ask, okay, well, hold on a second. So if we agree that you didn't eat the best thing for you, well, does that mean that you were categorically upset or angry with yourself every day for lunch or like why am i doing this to myself beating myself up probably not you were probably okay and happy with whatever it is you ordered in fact i would guess that for example at the end of a long day you're sitting in there in, in quarantine and you say to yourself you know what i've had a long hard day you know what i deserve what do you deserve kevin whatever i fancy most that's right <laughs> and usually what you fancy is something i'm gonna bet is not good for you Right, like yeah, you say, yeah. you're, you're exposing me now. <laughs> you say, like, I want a, I want a beer, I want a cheese, but whatever it is, right? And so this idea that, hey, you know what? We don't always make the best decisions for us. Best, uh, you know, I would say, uh, uh, objectively speaking, if we were being audited by Deloitte, all of our decisions, we don't make the objectively best decisions for us. But we always make the decisions that align with our emotional state right? Like we feel good. And that's, I mean, you know, that this is why the modern marketing engine and advertising, this is why it works. I'm trying to sell you a lifestyle. I'm trying to sell you the future. You, you ever see these commercials? I don't know if you have these on, on TV for pharmaceuticals, right? And, and, and it's like this, it's for, maybe it's for arthritis or something. And, and they have to tell you all of the side effects that, you know, on the, on the commercial, like, oh, it will cause death and your head will blow up and all that. And you're listening to all these things. And yet the images you see on the screen are, it's an elderly couple, the grandchildren are coming to visit, they're gardening. They're like, this looks like the most fun I could ever have. And the reason is because they're trying to sell you a feeling, even yeah. though they have to tell you all these things. And so the magical question is that people, and don't kid yourself on the B2B buying side as well, People don't buy things because they're the best objectively speaking for them. They buy things because they align with their emotional state. And um, one of the arguments I always give, people say, well, does that happen in B2B you know, technology? What about big purchases as well? And I say, you know, you ever hear the phrase, no one ever got fired for buying IBM? Have you ever heard that? No, I, I quote, I say, <laughs> it went, that's going back a while. Then I said it was like, um, nobody got fired for buying uh, Cisco. 
That's and right. Then I actually then said, I don't know, it's part of your, I said, no one got fired for buying Salesforce. Yes. I know it's part of your part. Because mm -hmm. it's the big machine, you know, it is that safe, emotional, secure decision. That's right. No one would use the phrase, no one ever got fired for blank if buying, thing, buying things were completely, you know, uh, rational and logical. They're saying that because it's a feeling. And you even see, for example, you know, if let's say you're trying to sell a technology solution to, you know, an IT company who just had a data breach. Like, let's say you sell IT security and now I'm going toe-to-toe -to -toe with you. You're the buyer and you're buying this thing from me. Am I the best solution? I don't know, maybe, but you just had a data breach. And so you need to shore this up. I actually wonder with everything going on, with the, with the, we're in the kind of pandemic zone now, and people are selling masks and PPE and ventilators and all these kinds of things. I actually wonder how much procurement rigor is happening in the procurement of these products, or is it just, you know what? People are dying. We need masks for our doctors in our hospital. I'm not as interested in negotiating rigorously you know, with this for you because I'm making an emotional, I need these products. It doesn't matter what they cost at this point, right? The floodgates are open. Yeah, in the book, you talk, and it's a section I sort of honed in on, one of the many that I marked with my, my, my green tabs, is you talk about discovery and that, that you should start with emotional questions. And then I thought, okay, what's an emotional question? And then I started reading them and I went, yeah, I get it. Because I try to put myself in the chair. If I was the recipient, sometimes I'm a buyer. If I was a recipient, someone, they are going to get me talking good time with those sort of questions. Yeah, well, look, it's, it's funny. There's, there's this kind of concept I refer to as emotional priming, which dates back to, let's say, for example, as a kid, when you come home from school and you have a report card and the report card is bad and the teacher says, you have to get this signed by your mother, right? And so you go home and, your mother, and you're like, okay, my mother's going to kill me. So you go to your mother and you say, you know, mom, did anyone tell you you look beautiful today? Right? <laughs> and then why do you do that? And actually children are the best negotiators. Um, I'm currently, one of the, I'm, I'm really enjoying uh, Stuart Diamond's book called Getting More. And he's a, a Wharton Business School professor and, and a, a negotiation guru. Anyways, he talks about children. And I love talking about, I have three kids, so I talk about children a lot in my book as well. And just the fact he's like, children need to be more creative in how they negotiate because they, they can't crush you with brute force. They don't have that, that muscle. Um, and he's, you know, it's not even that's the right way to do it anyways. But he said, you know, children are great. So why do you ask your mother, you say to your mother, you look beautiful today, to try to put her into a good mood so that when you hit her with the negative news, it gets colored by that positive news. And what's interesting is, and I talk about this in the book, is that that happens on a, on a micro level as well when you ask people questions. So if you ask people questions that produce an emotional response, that emotional response can then color, and this has been scientifically proven with statistical correlation, to color answers to subsequent questions. So if I'm trying to sell you, let's say, a, a, you know, a different kind of, um, I don't know, uh, product development solution or customer support solution, instead of saying, you know, hey, you know, are you happy with your current customer support solution provider, whatever it is, before I ask you that question, I can say, how many calls did you have to make, support calls did you have to make into your current vendor this year, you know, for support on that product, right? And now that becomes a question that's really easy for them to answer and will produce an emotional reaction. Just for example, if I said, you know, um, you know Kevin, how do you feel about your level of personal fitness these days? Right. You might say, well, you know, like I'm I exercise a bit and I eat, you know, right. Oh, you know, occasionally. But if I said, you know, Kevin, how many times have you been to the gym in the last month? 
right? You know the answer. That's a very quick question to answer that produces a very visceral, rapid emotional response. Now I ask you, how are you, ha are you happy with your personal level of fitness these days? It tends to color that question. So the order in which we ask our questions, and by the way, I say this is an advanced tactic. This is not something you should just go out and do because we're in sales, we're, we're uh, climatized to answering or asking layered questions. What's your problem? How long has it been going on? Tell me more about it. Can you give me an example? What have you tried? So those are all good questions. This is a different approach, which is asking questions in a specific order to produce an emotional response in the mind of your customer. Quite, yeah, I mean, we all know that questions are a big part of what we do in sales, but you know, you get a lot of, of sales approaches become Spanish inquisitional. Uh, they're very contrived, very biased. Buyers smell them a mile away. And one of the other things you, you talk about, which are quite like was a, a opinion-based questions. And that's something that you cover quite extensively within the book. For sure. Well, you know, it's interesting. Like the science tells us that the, the majority of our kind of speech or a big chunk of our speech as human beings, and even they found this in the animal kingdom as well, it involves telling people and sharing our own thoughts and opinions on things with, with other people we encounter. It's kind of part of our human nature. And so the idea is that when you are doing good discovery with your customers and you're trying to ask them good questions and we're, it's all about the questions. So the better the questions, the, the better the discovery is going to go. Oftentimes we tend to ask our customers fact-based questions. Tell me about this. You know, why is this happening? How much money are you losing? You know, what systems are you using today? And, and the, the reality is, and this has again been scientifically shown, customers don't like answering those questions as much as they like answering questions where they're asked to give their opinions on things, right? Because that's what we do in normal everyday life. So phrasing your, your kind of, you know, your questions in that format can have a massive impact on their ability to self-disclose and share information. So asking opinions are, are more powerful than for asking for facts. I'll tell you why I think that's really important, because if you look at how buying happens now, we, we used to sell to, there'd be a decision maker, you sell to one person. Now, now it's consensus-based decision making with a big committee. And what are big committees of all those people have? Opinions. Mm -hmm. So people want their opinion to be heard. So opinion-based uh, questions is definitely something I want to encourage any of the listeners to start exploring, especially through your book. One other big area I want to talk about, because this is all about being more attractive to buyers. We're in the market of selling and we've got to be better than the people competing against and more appealing to buyers. You cover your buyer-based messaging. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, you know, if you're trying to break through, I, I refer to this concept as the sea of sameness, right? So you just kind of sound, you're, you're, I know you're an intricate, delicate snowflake and unique from everyone else, but your customers, you just all sound the same. And so if you want to break through, you know, oftentimes people say, well, don't talk about the product because people don't care about the product. Talk about the benefits, right? So, you know, and, you know we're going to have this solution and it's, it's going to automate a whole bunch of processes at your company, but the benefit is it's going to save you like X amount of time or it's going to save you X amount of money. That's better, but that still doesn't speak to like, what's the problem, the enemy that the customer is trying to, to battle? Because that's going to produce like the bigger visceral emotional reaction, right? So like a simple example, when I, on my website, if you go to my website, what does the front copy say? I haven't changed it in like three years. What does it say? It says, do you ever wonder why you don't like talking to salespeople, right? Now, my, why would I say that? My website is geared towards salespeople and leaders, right? But I'm willing to bet that most salespeople will admit that they don't like talking to people like them. Not on a personal level. We all like you know, human beings, but talking to salespeople. We don't like talking to salespeople. Now, if you're a sales leader 
and you realize that, hey, you know what? I, I don't like talking to salespeople. Now, all of a sudden, you're leaning in and you're saying, who is this David guy? And, and let me, I'm interested to hear, to hear what he has to say now. Because, not because I talked about how my sales content can increase your conversion rates and revenue and all that kind of stuff, but because I spoke to like a deeper enemy. And there's lots of really great enemies out there wasted time, money, resources, visibility. You know, even I'll give you an example. Um, one of my customers sells to um, MSPs, so managed service providers, and they do like network mapping and topology and all these super boring stuff, right? So like no one cares about the fact that they do network mapping and resource management, and all this kind of stuff, but they would go out to their customers and say, hey, look, we work with lots of, you know, MSPs, service providers like you. And the thing that we hear is that the thing that they hate most is when one of their customers finds a problem in their own network and then calls them in the middle of the night. You know what? They're paying you to find those problems before they do, and you need to be the one to call them, right? You do not want to be on the receiving end of that call. You need to find the problems and bring it to them. Now, let's say I was, I'm that vendor. You don't even know what I do. Now I'm speaking the language of the pain, right? The language of the enemy, like lack of visibility, angry customers. Now you're interested to hear what I have to say. And that is, in, in my view, the most buyer-centric perspective you can have. It's not about the products, not about the features and benefits. It's about the problem that the customer is experiencing that you are helping solve for them. I look at selling as two things now. It's problem management and people management. Find the problem, then, I, then manage having to manage all the people that you need to help solve that problem. So look, we're, we're having a bit of fun here. So I'm going to carry on for two more questions. I know mm -hmm. we've sort of run a bit beyond what we said. If you're good with that, let, let's carry on. There's a big, the big, the value question. I talk to sales leaders a lot and I say to them, okay, how are your guys at selling value? And he said, most of them don't know what value is. You know, that in fact, they struggle to do uh, ROI. And, and I've always had a, an issue with ROI because it's very difficult to, to, to come up with an ROI unless you truly understand what has to happen in terms of the, of that, the buyer's organization, what their costs are, the people involved, all that stuff. Really quite difficult. But you sort of talk to them and you sort of say in the book that uh, value is not ROI. Tell us a bit more about what you see as being value. Yeah, I mean, sales, this is part of the challenge that salespeople are conditioned to sell value. And are, as leaders, we tell our team, sell value, sell value, which basically means that there's a financial benefit for the customer to invest in our products or services. So that's what ROI is. If you invest a certain amount of money with me, whatever it is I do for you or with you will either save you money or make you money at the end of the day. And so that's why if that, if that number is big enough, then you're going to be willing to move. And that may be true. But as we've already seen, that's not why people buy things, right? If I were to say like, what's the ROI of the last vacation you went on? And why did you go there? Why didn't you go to like this other place? Like, would the ROI have not, not been as great, right? Or if I said, you know, hey, uh, again, back on vacation, you're going to go on a trip somewhere. And, uh, and, and if I gave you a really good deal to upgrade to, to first class on that flight, you know, would you like to do that? Even though you don't really have that money, you might say, oh yeah, first class, that would, that would be really, really be awesome. It would really make the trip. Again, these things are not ROI based, right? They're not financial return based. These are feelings that you have. And so the idea is that people buy feelings first and foremost, and value is a feeling, right? And the thing that someone values is very different than what someone else values. So think about something that Kevin, you might value that another person would say, or someone that something you spend money on, that another person would look at and say, that's ridiculous, right? I'm not, I don't want to out you here, right? 
but we all have these things, right? And it could be vacation or the car we drive or the clothes we wear, right? And the software we purchase, tech, whatever it is. And so the thing that people value is really the thing you have to sell to. So again, let's talk about we're in pandemic zone now, and now a country has run out of surgical masks for their medical practitioners, right? All of a sudden, what is that what does that country value? They value being able to get that equipment for their frontline healthcare workers. And the cost of that healthcare equipment is not as important as it was maybe a year ago, right? Getting the best possible deal. So now they value that. You've had a fire in your house. So now you need new smoke detectors and fire extinguishers. Like what's the value of that? Well, the value of having those things is greater than it was a year ago. Or if you're at the airport and you're thirsty and now you need a bottle of water. What's the value of that bottle of water compared to what it was an hour earlier when you were just on the street standing by the convenience store? So the idea is that value is a, is a discretionary subjective feeling that drives all of our purchases. And so if you're going out there and saying, just sell financial ROI, the kind of financial piece of that value, you are missing a huge opportunity to convert buyers in the way that they typically buy things. Okay, you're going to help me out. I'm not so bad now as I used to be. I'll tell you what I was bad at. In the days when people wore ties, I had ties that cost the price of everyone else's suits. Um, <laughs> because it was my statement. It was that, and people would go look at it and go, gee, you know, they, they, everyone would turn the tie around and check the label out and go, whoa, how much does that cost? You don't want to know. You don't want to know. But, but I value it. I've still got a lot of them now because I'm never going to wear them but I can't throw away something that costs so much money. Ah, it is what it is. Okay, final question. So this is about trying to change seller-centric people to be more buyer-centric. And to, to, as you say, sell them, get them to sell the way that, that they buy. What would your advice be to sales teams out there in terms of What's the immediate things they could start thinking about? Because it is a transition. Nobody's going to become biocentric overnight. What's the first thing they can start to do if they really do believe in the future of being biocentric? Yeah, I mean, so the first thing you can do, and, and when I say sell the way you buy, there's kind of two components. The simplest component is, is empathy, which is just don't use tactics that wouldn't work on you. Okay, that's it. Like if you take nothing away from this and the book, just do that because oftentimes, for example, in my VP roles, I would have reps that would come to me and they would say things like, hey, I have this customer. I'm trying to get you, they've gone dark on me. I'm trying to kind of reinvigorate the sales cycle. I have this email that I was going to send them or whatever tactic it was. Could David, could you take a look at it? Let me know what you think. And I would be like, okay, sure. And I would take a look at it and I would, and I would put it back to the rep and I would say, if you were the customer, would you get back to you by sending this email, by reading this email? And they would kind of sheepishly grin and be like, ah, probably not. Like, so why are we doing this? So sell the way you buy means don't use tactics that wouldn't work on you if you found yourself on the buying side, right? Like the high pressure tactics, the unempathetic tactics, the tactics from 10, 20 years ago. Don't do those things. But then the second piece is, is really kind of drilling down into kind of how we started today here, which is the why. Whenever tactic that you use, I want you to know the pathways and mechanisms by which that tactic operated on the customer's mind so that you can align your sales motion towards the things that work. So just even simple things like selling value versus selling ROI, that's an example of sell the way you buy. Because if you buy that way, vacations, food, cars, ties, whatever it is you buy, well, you should be learning from that and changing your sales motion to align with that thought process. So sell the way you buy, the quickest, easiest thing, just don't do stuff that wouldn't work on you. Level two is, 
really start inspecting the pathways and mechanisms by which you make purchasing decisions. And I say you, I mean human beings, right? This is where we get into the science to align your sales motion that way. One of the things I'll throw in as well, because I, I, one of the things that really, really amazes me, frustrates me, if I ask sales teams, well, okay, the customer bought from you. How did they decide and buy? What happened in their organization? They haven't got a clue because it's, it's the same as when, if you actually start to look at what's the process for the decision, they can tell you what the decision date might be that they shoot towards because that's what they need for the forecast. That's what they need to start calculating why they get commission. But I, I would say, go and talk to some of your existing customers. Try and understand what happened during the process when they went through the other vendors and you, who got involved, what happened, what they found difficult, what they needed that you know you might be able to provide in the future. If you don't understand how people buy, you, you don't know how to help them. I've loved it, David. And I totally recommend anyone go and read the book. And as we said before we started, it was one of those books that you won't get it first time you read it, but any good book shouldn't do. It's, it's supposed to stop you in your tracks, make you think, and then you go, aha. Yeah, I see what David means here. Any good book should make you think. Then sort of reflect on what you do. And, and you, your book certainly does that. So I, I'm a, a big advocate on it. How can anyone get hold of you, David? Yeah, I mean, you know, so the website is the easiest way, cerebralselling.com. And I give away actually, you know, this is, I should say this quietly because I give away a ton of content there for free. You don't have to register for anything. So cerebralselling.com, that's where you can find me. Um, I have a YouTube channel by the same name. And then Sell the Way You Buy is the book, which you can get anywhere you buy books. If it's Amazon's your thing, you can grab it on Amazon as well. And uh, you can also hit me up on LinkedIn. It's been an absolute pleasure. I I'm so grateful you took the time to join me on the podcast. And I truly hope the book becomes a benchmark for biocentric selling. So thanks, David. Oh, so nice of you to say. Thanks so much, Kevin. It's a pleasure being here. And thank you for inviting me.